Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. I hope it's not going to be that kind of week, Jim. We have no good martinis for anyone. Uh, we have bad, crazy, and crazy. I guess there's good news. The person who's seventh in line to the throne of the United Kingdom has been born. That's the equivalent to being seventh runner-up at the Miss America pageant. So congratulations to that child. You'll be tabloid fodder forever. It's hard to know sometimes, Jim, how cynical to be on things like this. You're obviously happy that a healthy child has been born and you wish the best for the family. But then you watch some people really get obsessed with events like this. So I, I try to chart a middle course. You know, Greg, I look at this a little bit differently. I, you know, because uh, this child was born to an American mother, that is an American citizen. We are just six people away from getting an American on the throne of the United <laughs> Kingdom, Greg. We're taking it back. <laughs> you thought the revolution was bad, Britain? Here we come. We're taking over. All right. You know. You're going to be our colony. How do you like them apples, huh? <laughs> the only problem is Queen Elizabeth's going to live to about 120. So um, Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it'll take a while. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's a lot of attrition right there. But, uh, hey, enjoy it. You won't have to ever be on the throne, kid. All right, let's start with our bad martini. Uh, the United States, says ABC News, is deploying an aircraft carrier strike group and a bomber task force to the Middle East on short notice in response to clear indications that Iran and Iranian proxies were planning an attack on U.S. forces in the region, a U.S. official said. Late Sunday night, the White House made a surprise announcement that the USS Abraham Lincoln and a bomber task force were being deployed in response to unspecified, quote, trouble and escalatory indications and warnings, unquote. A statement from National Security Advisor John Bolton said the deployments were intended, quote, to send a clear and unmistakable message to the Iranian regime that any attack on United States interests or on those of our allies will be met with unrelenting force. It goes on to say the United States is not seeking war with the Iranian regime, but we are fully prepared to respond to any attack, whether by proxy, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or regular Iranian forces. So... Jim, I'm not sure what the intel showed here, but obviously it was something pretty alarming and pretty concrete. So I guess it's good that our people are on it and we've got forces that are able to deploy to the region to make sure the mischief doesn't get too far out of hand. But obviously pretty alarming. This was a uh, uh, unnerving. It seemed to come, if not quite out of the blue, then, then with not a great deal of forewarning and an email or a kind of a release statement from John Bolton. Basically, what Greg read is what you got. Uh, you know, we something something bad is in the works, <laughs> and we're going to uh, deploy our carrier there. This probably means sending them through um, uh, the Strait of Hormuz. Now, Greg, you and I are around the same age. I remember that term, the Strait of Hormuz, and having it this unbelievably ominous tone when it's done by news anchors. Uh, and so, basically, 1987, 1988, this was the era of what sometimes got called the the tanker war. Um, in which it was basically perceived to be a, a low, you know, I don't want to say a cold war, but a um, kind of a, a, a great deal of tension between the United States and Iran. They kept saying they were going to put mines in the Strait of, Tormu, of Hormuz and cut off the Persian Gulf uh, from the rest of the ocean. Uh, this, the Strait of Hormuz is that tiny spot between Iran and I'm going to have to get up and look at my map uh, to see which country <laughs> it is. It's near Abu Dhabi. I believe it's United Arab Emirates. Hang on. 
It's Yemen or Oman, one of those two, right? Oman and United Arab Emirates. <laughs> This is what happens. People are getting a sense of the geography of Jim's home office. The map of the Middle East is on the other side of the office, and now he's realizing if things heat up, he might have to move it a little bit closer. But yeah, so it's this narrow strip of water. Uh, if you wanted to cut off uh, shipping traffic, this would be the right spot to do it. It's not terribly wide. You put mines in the water. Tanker captains get very nervous about it. And this is how you get access to Kuwait City. Uh, that little stretch of Iraq that's got ports, uh, basically, you know, uh, Dubai, all, all kinds of stretch in the, the Persian Gulf. If you mined that, you could cut it off. So what you started doing was you started having U.S. Navy vessels were tra- uh, going along with oil tankers because they didn't want this to be uh, cut over. And I believe also you started having like American flags flying over Kuwait's commercial tankers. Um, because, look, what were the odds that America was going to have to stand up for Kuwait anytime soon? This was obviously the late 80s and not too long before the Persian Gulf War. Hopefully it doesn't escalate, escalate to anything like that. Um, but having said that, it's a little bit ominous. It's, you know, sending a carrier group to a particular neighborhood is one way that the U.S. Navy can, the U.S. government can project power and <clears throat> kind of a, uh, you know, the old uh, Teddy Roosevelt speak softly and carry a big stick. Let them know that we can respond if they attempt to start trouble. Um, now, the interesting thing is, we, you know, Trump has dealt with North Korea and some rockets being launched, but we really haven't dealt with anything quite on the scale of uh, a direct military provocation. Hopefully it doesn't come to this point. Uh, but, you know, we just don't know what the mood in Iran is and if they really are contemplating something. Uh, you know, Iran's assessment of uh, acceptable risk is a little bit different than a whole bunch of regimes. So we'll see how things shake out here. But uh, a little bit ominous news coming out of the Middle East this morning first crazy martini now, Jim, and unfortunately, the group of people who can't accept election results is getting larger, which wouldn't be the world's biggest problem, except that some of these people are running for president of the United States, and another one did. Uh, We talked just last week about Hillary Clinton saying, huh, you can run a great campaign, you can be the nominee, and you might still not win, because, of course, the Russians... And Trump colluded to steal the election from her or something. Uh, Stacey Abrams, we've talked about her. She still thinks she's the rightful governor of Georgia. It's been explained in repetitive detail why her claim is bogus. Brian Kemp, the governor, former secretary of state, was enforcing laws that have been on the books since the 90s. He wasn't suppressing anyone's votes. Uh, And now you've got two different people running for the Democratic presidential nomination. The one getting the most attention is Kamala Harris, keynote speaker at the NAACP convention. Here's what she had to say about the 2018 midterms and voter suppression. Let's say this loud and clear. Without voter suppression, Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia. Andrew Gillum is the governor of Florida. So the truth is, we need a new Voting Rights Act. Before we get to Joe Biden, listen to Harris again on this one sentence. She suddenly went Southern. Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia. Very nice. Very, very. Governor uh... of Georgia? <laughs> Greg, I suppose she's from Southern California. Is that the explanation? <laughs> Either that or this reminding me, God, I'm going to flash back once again to the late 80s, early 90s, the Metuchen High School production of My Fair Lady, where I was expected to put on a Cockney outfit, a Cockney <laughs> accent. What's up there, governor? <laughs> governor of Georgia? So, oh, man, that's awesome. That's, of course, you know, South Wales. 
So Joe Biden, uh, him of put y'all back in chains fame from the 2012 campaign trail, was talking about this as well. And he's apparently drinking the Kool-Aid, too. The single most important right you have as an American, the right to vote, the right to vote. And folks, last year, 24 states introduced or enacted at least 70 bills to curtail the right to vote. And guess what? Mostly directed at, quote, people of color. You see it. We got Jim Crow sneaking back in. No, I mean it. Why? Because you know, if everybody has an equal right to vote, guess what? They lose. They lose. Well, yeah, so he's talking about photo ID and legislation like that, I think, for the most part, Jim. So what do you make of the Democrats piling on thinking this is a winner? Well, first of all, either a a losing candidate complaining about the results and complaining that they really won and that uh, voter fraud and shenanigans and suppressing of the ballot and hiding ballot. Look, either it's bad when both parties do it or it's not something to worry about, but you can't say it's only bad when one party does it. I didn't like what Trump was saying before the election. I made fun of Roy Moore, you know, oh, we need a recount in Alabama. Uh, Look, this is contagious, Greg. Even I'm doing a Southern accent now. Um, (laughs) That Moore said he was going to fight for a recount. There never was a recount. It was not that close. It was like more than 10,000 votes. Um, Most of the margins we're talking about here are, you know, when when Hillary Clinton talks about how, you know, uh, voter suppression in, in, uh, you know, Wisconsin. I'll get to voter suppression in a second. But most of the time we're dealing with margins, 10,000, 20,000, sometimes close to 50,000 votes as in Georgia. These are not, you know, razor thin Florida 2000 coin toss type ones. These are ones in which you know, you were you fell short by tens of thousands of votes. It wasn't that close. And you're just such an enormous narcissist, you can't go deal with the fact that the electorate preferred somebody else and it's just you know, it is the equivalent of a childish tantrum. And for this idea of curtailing the right to vote so you're right. Sometimes it's voter ID, Greg, but sometimes it's even worse than that. Um, one of the ways that it's allegedly we are suppressing the vote, Greg, is by not having Election Day be a federal holiday. Oh. Well, here's the you know, Obama won two presidential elections by a pretty wide margin <laughs> when it wasn't a federal holiday. Was that voter suppression? Was that not a free and fair election? Um, the other one is you know, eliminate, reducing, not eliminating, but reducing the, num- the, the number of days for early voting. Now, I like early voting. Uh, I don't like it enormously, but some of these were states moving from 17 days to 10 or from 14 days to 8, right? Now, we can argue about how many days is the right amount, whether we should be more. I myself do think that once you get past that two weeks window, you end up with a little bit of a threat of people casting a ballot and then something coming up in the, you know, an October surprise in those last couple of, uh, last couple of days before the election and they find out they voted for a candidate who they don't want to vote for. And before you say, oh, Jim, that would never happen. Look, besides Bush's DUI back in 2000, just in the last presidential election, both announcements by James Comey. This is why you're supposed to have election day, not election month. Now, look, I realize, you know, people are traveling. People are worried they're going to get sick. People are worried about traffic, long lines. You want to have an early voting period? Fine. I think that's a good idea. I do think, you know, it's, it's okay to have some reasonable limits to it. And I don't think that having reducing your number of early voting days from 17 to 10 counts as voter suppression suppression or it's not curtailing the right to vote it's not taking away the right to vote it's just saying no instead of going on two three tuesdays before the election you have to go two tuesdays before the election right there's no indication that anybody's ever been able not able to vote because they changed it from this day to that day um the second thing that's uh, just kind of maddening about this is that you know there are a whole bunch of states and by the way not just you know deep southern states delaware connecticut rhode island 
uh, and Pennsylvania, which don't have early voting. You you need you know you can't get absentee unless you you know list a reason for it. In fact, I think Virginia is this way as well. You have to say, oh, I'm gonna, I'm likely to be traveling that day or something. Now it's not how much are they necessarily enforce it that you know strictly. But here's the thing: if reducing uh, the number of early voting days, as Florida and North Carolina did, represents curtailing the right to vote. What do you call Pennsylvania and Delaware and Connecticut and Rhode Island for not having any early voting days? In other words, Joe Biden, did you just accuse the state of Delaware of, uh, of curtailing the right to vote? I think the only appropriate punishment there would be to take away all of its Amtrak. <laughs> Jim, maybe I'm not sufficiently woke here, but how would uh, reducing the days available for early voting be uh, uh, more harmful to one demographic group than another? You know, by the way, in case you want, my understanding is that the people who are more likely to, to use early voting when it's offered are generally whiter and more wealthy and more suburbanite than the average voter. So actually, it's a Republican demographic. <laughs> so you're actually when, when Republicans propose these sorts of things, uh, you're actually they're actually harming themselves, if theoretically. Again, you know, if you reduced it from having like 21 days of early voting to two. OK, that, I can understand that being a slightly more reasonable objection. In most of these cases, you're, you're changing it from a three-week period to a two-week period. That does not strike me. This is not, you know, it is an insult to Jim Crow to compare that to Jim Crow. And notice Biden's a little bit of, you know, how, how slippery he is. 70 pieces of legislation have been enacted or introduced. <laughs> Anybody can introduce legislation. You know, that, that in 280 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks, which they will then leave on the table in Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> Are there legitimate topics to discuss here? Sure, but not the way they're doing it. And this is another way for Democrats to basically play this heads I win, tails you lose sort of game where if we win, the election is legitimate. If we lost, then clearly some sort of nefarious cheating was going on. Jim, let's go on to our our second crazy and our third martini overall. And uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, is either going to run for president is still thinking about running for president or is really decided but isn't ready to announce running for president. Uh, that was all the rage on Friday, the New York Daily News, announcing that he was all in. Uh, but then NBC4 bringing a little more context to the issue. Mike Casca of de Blasio's political action committee, Fairness Pack, is pushing back pretty hard this afternoon, saying very hard to announce something without a decision. Nearly impossible, some might say. And other City Hall insiders are also insisting that Mayor de Blasio has not made up his mind. Maybe he hasn't, or maybe they're just trying to keep their plans under wraps. He is polling in Iowa. Insiders tell me more staffers have been taking leaves of absence to go work for his PAC. One close advisor to the mayor this afternoon told me he is doing this. He is running and that the announcement is coming very soon. So that's NBC4 in New York. Jim, you can always tell when folks on the left uh, getting into the race is a good thing based on how the media coverage is looking, because the media, of course, generally tends to like people on the left more. Here's just three examples of what's going on here with uh, headlines when this report came out. First of all, Vanity Fair. Bill de Blasio still desperately trying to justify running for president. Over at the uh, New York Magazine, Bill de Blasio is reportedly running for president for some unfathomable reason. And the Daily Beast, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio unites the nation. No one wants him to run for president. So, Jim, clearly it's a it's a green light. Three things jump out about this. First of all, America's groundhogs. It is time to run and hide. <laughs> Your long national nightmare is about to begin. Because as we all should you know, as the first thing you think of when you hear Bill de Blasio should be he killed a groundhog on Groundhog Day. 
Um, just just file that away. When I put my, if I ever get around to doing a twenty things on De Blasio, that's going to be numbers one through nineteen. Um, <laughs> the second thing is, first of all, I don't understand how you could be any type of democratic official and look at the twenty two. I guess if, if if De Blasio jumps in, it could be twenty two. When I put together my list, I did not count Mike Gravel, the uh, for, you know, lawmaker <laughs> yeah. from Alaska. Um, it much, you know, in part, you could say, because I simply don't want to think about Mike Gravel. <laughs> oh, by the way, newsflash, Mike Gravel's alive. And uh, this is the guy who did that wacky, he threw a rock into a pond and then just stared into the camera in this eerie, unnerving David Lynchian stare um that maybe he's you know maybe he's running for president or maybe he's got a bunch of bodies in his in his cellar um and that was you know that was gravel so he's in it dan mclaughlin my colleague says you should count him uh, and apparently montana governor steve bullock is still very strongly considering it if you do that it gets to 24 and as i wrote on friday this would be the worst 24 since the Sangalese rebels took over the white house by sneaking into the sewers <laughs> so if, I don't, if you're a Democratic official, how do you look at this field and say, well, you know, it's, it's, it's just a viewpoint that's just not represented here, right? It, it was de Blasio want to say, well, there's no one here who wants to stand for New York because, you know, Cory Booker is not that far away. Oh, wait, Kristen Gillibrand's a senator from New York and she's running. I can understand how you could forget her. It's a big crowd. There's a lot of people. She hasn't generated a lot of news lately. Oh, there isn't a mayor running uh, except for Booker and Hickenlooper and... Uh, Boudet Edge and Julian Castro. <laughs> That's it. Right? So he'd be the fifth mayor to jump into this race. The only reason you're running right now is narcissism. The only reason you're running right now is ego and this, you know, this irritation that everybody else is running. Why not you? What makes them so special? And again, maybe you're looking at the Eric Swalwells of the world and saying, well, wait a second, that guy's a schmuck. If he's running, why aren't I? I deserve my hour long primetime town hall on, on CNN too. Um, the combination of the Democratic National Committee having ludicrously low standards for qualifying in the debates, and I think also a little bit of the blame belongs at the belongs at the feet of the CNNs of the world for basically creating a, an unbelievable incentive for every single lawmaker. Run! What do you have to lose? There's no longer any embarrassment for getting one percent uh, and being and trailing the Andrew Yangs of the world. No, oh, by the way, yes, Kirsten Gillibrand is trailing Andrew Yang. Half of our listeners are like, yes, he mentioned Andrew Yang. Uh, the other half are like, who is Andrew Yang? <laughs> so this is where we are with this. And then thirdly, if you're wondering why is the media more critical of Bill de Blasio, considering how he's a Democrat, he's a very progressive, you think they'd agree with him. Um, Bill de Blasio is, by a lot of measures, not a particularly good New York mayor. We've had Giuliani. We've had Bloomberg. New York actually had a pretty good years, all things considered. Obviously, had 9-11 attacks, you know, serious challenges. But basically, it's enjoyed, you know, various forms of economic renaissance and booms and stuff like that for a long time. If you grew up in the pre-Giuliani years, if you remember the Ed Koch years, and the David Dinkins years, you remember times when the streets smelled like urine and there were homeless people everywhere and the crime rates were much higher. And, you know, all of the, the classic, you know, 1970s taxi driver, son of Sam, you know, Bernie gets shooting people on the subway. The bad old days of New York City. Well, bit by bit, inch by inch, the bad old days are coming back. Uh, and there are a whole bunch of you know, the subways constantly having delays and problems and you know worries about safety and things like that. Explosion of the homeless. Um, every time I go up there for doing stuff for CNN, I marvel at the uh, the cost of living up there. So if you're, you know, there are a whole bunch of New Yorkers who are Democrats who are progressives and who don't like Bill De Blasio because he's not doing a good job on the basic, you know 
things you're supposed to take care of as a mayor. And that, I suspect, is why you get a lot more cynical reaction to his interest in running for president than a whole bunch of other Democrats across the country. Oh, we just need eight more uh, to get to 32, because <laughs> then we can have a bracket, March Madness style, and do it the way I, I really want to do it. But I'm not sure we're going to get eight more. We can more. still do this with play-in rounds. Yeah, we could get the, the top eight in the polls uh, a bye, and that way you get down to 16 and go from there. I'm, I'm game for that. I'm game for that. There you go. So, you know, and at least that way, you know, and if you have the whole thing covered by Dick Vitale, I'll be much happier. <laughs> Who would be the diaper dandy in this race? I don't even know. Julian Castro. <laughs> he put that edge. Nobody can pronounce his name and they don't see him coming. He's out of nowhere. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. It's only Monday. Jim, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.